continue in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Again, difficult subject matter today. Uh, some, for some of us, perhaps particularly difficult. Uh, if any of you would ever like to talk or would like me to pray with you, please let me know. If you're not comfortable talking with me, I'd be happy to help you find somebody with whom you would be comfortable. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Jumping right into the middle of the story. But Amnon would not listen to Tamar. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother. For this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence. Bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves. For thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it's come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. 
But Absalom fled and went to Timai, the son of Amuhud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, as we pray together that your kingdom would come here on earth, that your will would be done here just as fully and as joyfully as it's done in heaven, we are reminded of all the ways that your will is not being done here, of all the ways that your kingdom has not come. We express with the psalmist our sadness in seeing all these things, our grief, our despair over it all. And yet also with the psalmist, we remember that you keep count of our tossings. You have put our tears in your bottle. Remind us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that even in the darkest valleys when you seem most absent, that you're there, that you see us, that you're watching everything. Help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Toward the end of his book, on the many ways that Christianity has created the modern world, the Roman historian Tom Holland writes on the Me Too movement. And he's, as far as I know, he's not a Christian. Holland says this, In antiquity, the freedom to sleep around when and as one liked had tended to be the perk of a very exclusive subsection of society, powerful men. Zeus, Apollo, Dionysius, all had been habitual rapists. So too, in the Rome to which Paul had traveled with his unsettling message of sexual continence, had been many a head of household. Holland goes on. Implicit in Me Too was the same call to sexual continence that had reverberated throughout the church's history. Protesters who marched in the red cloaks of handmaidens were summoning men to exercise control over their lusts, just as the Puritans had done. Appetites that had been hailed in the 1960s by enthusiasts for sexual liberation stood condemned once again as predatory and violent. The human body was not an object, not a commodity to be used by the rich and the powerful as and when they pleased. 2,000 years of Christian sexual morality had resulted in men as well as women widely taking this for granted. Had it not, then Me Too would have had no force. Today we have a passage from the Old Testament, of all places, that vehemently condemns sexual violence against the vulnerable. But it does this, not directly, by drawing a neat moral lesson for us at the end, but rather it does it indirectly. It does it by placing before us, in the form of a story, the utter horror of sexual abuse. The way that it can destroy not only its victims, but also the way that it echoes into the lives of other people and even other generations far removed. This is one of the darkest chapters in the entire Bible. I don't know if you noticed this, but God is mentioned nowhere. The story is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to David that his own rejection of God by violently preying upon Bathsheba and her husband Uriah 
God's promise that his rejection of God by doing those things was going to lead to horrible consequences for his family and for his kingdom. In some ways, what you are seeing in 2 Samuel chapter 13 is what the world is like when God's not around. And at the same time, the fact that these stories are here in the Bible show us that God is present, that he is profoundly attentive to the plight of victims and to the oppression of the wicked. Many of us, in our own sadness and shame and abuse, have wondered where God was in all of it. We've wondered if God has disappeared or perhaps if he never existed at all. But I hope to show you by the end that as utterly dark as this story is, and we shouldn't try to sugarcoat it at all, it's actually meant to point us beyond David and his kingdom, to point us beyond this sad world to a better king, a better kingdom, and a better world. God's own kingdom of perfect justice. I have three headings for you today. All of them are very uplifting. Depravity, desolation, decapitation. (laughs) First, verses 1 to 14, depravity. We start out with depraved love. Depraved love. David's oldest son, Amnon, is the heir to the throne. You hear that he is so madly in love with his half-sister, Tamar, that he makes himself sick. Perhaps you could translate that as depressed. Ominously, we are told that the reason he's so despondent is because he can't think of a way to do to her what he wants. What he has convinced is love is, of course, really lust. It's a depraved kind of love that God has said must not be fulfilled or even entertained no matter how intensely or sincerely he feels it. Our world says that love is love, that everybody should have the freedom to love whomever they want, as if that's that, end of the argument. But our text shows us that some kinds of love are actually horrifically evil. In verse 3, we hear about a depraved wisdom. Amnon has a cousin and a friend named Jonadab. We're told that he's a very crafty man, Normally, that word is positive. It's translated elsewhere in the Bible as wise. This is the normal word for wise or for wisdom. But you quickly realize that Jonadab is an evil man for all of his intelligence and his expertise. It's a warning for us in our technocratic society about assuming that just because somebody is smart or educated or just because they hold some position, that that means that they want to do or will do what's best. It's a warning to those of us who have been blessed with skill or intelligence or status that you must never forget the fundamental priority of living righteously before God and other people. The expert Jonadab comes up with a plan for satisfying Amnon's lust. He says, pretend to be sick and then get your dad David to send you Tamar to take care of you alone and then you'll be in a position to take advantage of her like you want. Amnon follows the plan, and the hapless David steps right into the trap. Verse 6. Amnon said to the king, Let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. In verse 7, David sends for Tamar and tells her to go care for her half-brother. In this 
horribly ironic twist, David has become an accessory to a sexual assault even worse than his own. Just like David had sent for Bathsheba and had commanded for her to come be devoured, so now he sends for his own daughter and commands her to come feed her brother, whose real plan is to devour her. Tamar has no idea. And with painstaking detail, we are told about how he's ravenously watching her go through these steps of preparing food for him. Our stomachs should be churning when you hear Amnon say to her that he wants to eat out of her hand. Depraved love, depraved wisdom, and now most horrifically, depraved strength. In verse 11, he clutches her, he tells her in two short commands, come here, sleep with me, even addressing her as my sister. But Tamar valiantly resists. She says, no, you are my brother. Don't violate me. You could translate that word as don't humiliate me. Don't oppress me. It's sometimes translated in the Bible. Why not? She says, such a thing is not done in Israel. The Canaanites, the peoples around us in the ancient world may do this kind of thing, but we have God's law and he has forbidden it. She says, don't do this outrageous thing. Something repugnant, something disgusting. She then tells him, consider the consequences. For me, I will be utterly humiliated and disgraced. Where could I carry my shame, she says. For you, she says, you will become one of the outrageous fools of Israel. It's a word far stronger than what we usually mean by the word fool. It means something like degenerate pervert. But finally, in an act of desperation, perhaps meant to buy time, she tells Amnon, go ask dad to let you have your way with me. It's perhaps a subtle dig against the king whose own sexual predations are not terribly different than his son's. But tragically, you hear in verse 14 that he would not listen to her voice and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Literally, it says he oppressed her and bedded her. Like many abusers now and since, Amnon would not take no for an answer. He used his strength and his power to overcome her. He refused to listen to her voice. Will we listen to her voice? Will we listen to what her tragic life and words are showing us? Are we seeing the horror of sin? And particularly the horror of sexual sin. Depravity and now desolation. Amnon is now disgusted, but not with himself, not with his sin, like he should be, but rather and horribly, he's disgusted with her. The depressing words of verse 15, Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Of course, his love was never any kind of real love. It was self-centered pride. It was bottomless lust for domination. It's not just that he becomes disinterested in her now. It's that he hates her. He casts her aside. He says to her, get up, go. It's an exact reversal of his earlier commands to come sleep with me. But Tamar, with incredible bravery, continues to stand up against him. She says, no, my brother. 
This wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you've done to me. It's hard to tell in the English translation, but the Hebrew here coming from her mouth has become disjointed and frantic and convoluted. It doesn't make any sense grammatically. In the wake of her abuse, Tamar is disintegrating. In verse 17, he orders his servants to throw her out and lock the door. Uh, Unlike in our translation, uh, he does not actually even use a noun to refer to her. He literally says, put this out of my presence. You see, she's become nothing to him. She's a piece of trash cast aside. But even still, Tamar does not go quietly. She puts ashes on her head. She rips her regal clothing as a public display of shame and mourning. And she goes through the palace crying aloud. That doesn't mean that she's weeping. It's a word that means something more like screaming. She's utterly violated and abused. She's calling for justice. King David, Israel's king, her own father, King David, should have been the first in line to deliver justice to her. But ominously, you don't hear about him, at least not yet. First, you hear about his other son, Absalom, her brother, verse 20, who realizes what's happened, but tells her, keep quiet about this. He says, get over it. Hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take it to heart. Like Tamar, many victims of abuse today are told to stay silent. Not to rock the boat. Don't cause problems for the family or for the church. Stay quiet. Like Tamar, many victims of abuse are offered simplistic solutions and token excuses. Sometimes with Bible verses to do it. Depravity, desolation, and now decapitation. Absalom does take Tamar into his house where we are told that she lives the rest of her days as a desolate woman. This is a word that often describes in the Old Testament places where nobody lives, ruins, wastelands. She's ruined. She's disgraced by what her brother's done to her, totally isolated. But you quickly realize that Absalom is not doing or saying any of this because of a genuine desire to help his sister. But rather, he's doing it because he has his own unquenchable lust. It's not a lust for his sister's body, but rather it's a lust for his father's throne. As the second-born son, Absalom's path to power is blocked by his older brother Amnon. And so he is going to use the humiliation of Tamar as an opportunity to kill his brother. And as you're going to see in the coming weeks, as an opportunity to seize his father's kingdom. It's now at this point that we're told about something about David. We're told that David is angry about what's happened to his daughter, but you are told nothing else. That's all that David feels. That's all that David does. He does not actually do anything about what's happened to her even though he's Israel's highest judge as Israel's king, even though he's her father. 
Perhaps David is so paralyzed by shame and guilt about his own sexual sin that he doesn't feel like he has the standing to condemn his own son over it. Perhaps David is afraid of what his sons are going to do to him if he exercises any discipline over them. But whatever he had done or whatever he was feeling, David should have pursued justice. You're going to see this over and over through the rest of 2 Samuel. David becoming shockingly weak in the face of other people's sins. David enabling people to literally sometimes get away with murder. David has become very quickly a shell of his former self. He's a powerless old man now, clinging to the bare emblems of the throne. David does nothing. And for now, neither does Absalom. Verse 22, he spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. He gets his sister quiet. He locks her down in his house. He lets the controversy die down. You hear in verse 23 that Absalom is biding his time for two whole years and that now he's ready to strike. He arranges for his brothers to all go along with him out into the countryside for the annual sheep shearing. David seems a bit suspicious about what Absalom is up to, but once again, he becomes a passive witness to everything going on. He gets worn down. Just like with the rape of Tamar, he ends up unintentionally enabling it all when when Absalom gets him to send along the other son. Absalom and his men get Amnon drunk, just like David had gotten Uriah drunk. And then Absalom commands his men to kill his hated brother, just like David had commanded his men to kill Uriah. And then Absalom and his men flee. They take up life among a pagan nation, just like how David had fled from Saul to live among the Philistines. At first, David thinks that Absalom has killed all of his sons, but the crafty, depraved, wisdom kind of guy, Jonadab, pops up again to reassure David, no, 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 it was just that he killed Amnon because of raping Tamar. You're then told three times in quick succession that Absalom is fleeing. But as with Amnon, David does nothing about it. David doesn't go after him. David doesn't say, what have you done? You've killed your brother. All David does is weep very bitterly, mourning for his son day after day. And so once again, you are seeing David portrayed very badly. He's not pursuing justice. He's paralyzed by the sins of his children. He's upset about injustice, but he's not willing to do anything about it. He's fearful. He's passive. He's weak. David is wallowing in the consequences of his own sins against Bathsheba and Uriah with his own children now committing the same kinds of sins that he did, transposed into a darker key. It's all incredibly gloomy. It should make us feel very grim. You see the horror of sexual violence, Tamar's lifelong burden of shame and silence, and you see Absalom's self-centered murder of her abuser bringing no real justice to her or to anybody. No real resolution. 
David is crumbling. His family is imploding. Sin is awful. And God is nowhere to be seen. But God is there, even if sometimes we don't see him. It's the same for you, brothers and sisters, as you deal with the shame and the effects of the ways that other people have abused you and silenced you and used you. God does see. God does hear. God is at work even in the darkness. Sin and abuse and violation and violence and oppression and injustice, they are not the end of the story. They do not have the final word. They do not need to be your deepest story or identity. The darkness of this passage is just awful. And it is meant to feel awful. It's showing us where human power ends up when it rejects God and his goodness and his law. It's showing us how desperately we need a savior, how we need to be rescued from this darkness in this world, how we need somebody to come to us from beyond the darkness. Remember, David, in the story of Israel, in the story of the Old Testament, King David is as good as it gets. We have now passed the high water mark. Things have gotten very dark very quickly. It's going to get a lot worse as you read the rest of the Old Testament. This story is meant to make us look further ahead. It's meant to make us look beyond the pathetic rule of David to the glorious goodness of his greater son, Jesus. Jesus has come and Jesus will come to bring real justice for the weak and real judgment for the wicked. There is restoration beyond desolation. There is redemption deeper than devastation. Listen as we close to how Jesus is described by the prophet Isaiah. And as I read it, savor how much better Jesus is than what we've seen here in 2 Samuel 13. How much better than what we've seen and experienced in our world. Listen to this. It begins by describing David's line as a stump. There's nothing there, almost nothing there. We already are seeing early in David's story of his family, the destruction of this family. Isaiah says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness 
the belt of his loins. Brothers and sisters, friends, God is faithful. He is righteous, even in the darkness. We see that most of all in Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we grieve the darkness of sin and violence and oppression in this world, we ask your mercy in taking us beyond the grief and the sorrow to see beyond the clouds the glory of your smiling face upon us as your children. Remind us and encourage us that as painful as all these things are, as real as they are, they are not the end of the story. We are pilgrims wandering through the valley of the shadow of death. Bring us into your house. Fill us with joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.